Welcome to the Brutal, Bizarre, and Boozy podcast. I'm Declan, the son. And I'm Jane, the mom. Enjoy a drink with us while we tell you some wild stories of the brutal and bizarre variety. Please keep in mind some of our stories might be upsetting to young or sensitive ears. This is the podcast where we talk about brutal crimes, bizarre occurrences, and get you drunk with cocktails themed around one of our stories. To lighten things up, we like to end our time with a chaser. So Declan, what is the story you're going to tell us today? So today I'm going to be talking about the Great Molasses Flood. Oh, I don't I don't know about that story. <laughs> so I'm excited yeah, to hear sounds, about that. It's fairly interesting. Uh, what are you going to be telling us about today, Mom? Well, I am going to be telling you about a murderer in England Ooh. on the island of Jersey. And I will explain why that is relevant in just a minute. But first, I wanted to do a quick shout out to another podcast. And that is the Strange and Sinister podcast, which is hosted by Sarah and Emily. Hi, friends. They describe themselves as crime-obsessed baristas. Oh, always love a good barista. Uh, and they love to watch documentaries and discuss mysteries and conspiracies right up our alley. You can tell they make good efforts um, being respectful of the victims, which is what I really appreciate, the victims and their families. It's super nice of them, um, which you don't find in every podcast, but I know that we try and be respectful of everybody when we get a chance, except the murderers, because, you know, they don't always deserve it. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, give the Strange and Sinister podcast a listen and binge them like I have been doing. So our story, our story is going to start with our drink, which is the Jersey Devil drink. The Jersey Ooh. Devil is made of four ounces of cranberry juice, two ounces of apple cider, one ounce of apple brandy or apple liqueur. And if you are so inclined and adventurous, then you can garnish it with apple slices the instructions are to mix all of the liquid ingredients in a glass with ice and stir. Super complicated. And then, of course, <laughs> throw your apple slices on if you want. And I found instructions that you can make this as a punch, too. So, like, especially getting into the holiday seasons, if you've got a big crowd or something, you can make this in advance for a bunch of people. Um, you don't even have to. It's You just change the quantities. And there's tons of recipes online for it in a punch environment versus a single glass but we did the single glass version because we're not having a party so nope are you ready to give it a try yes i am all right i made mine go. in a martini glass because i didn't a martini have a glass. small enough to make it nice <laughs> okay i made mine in my new fancy glasses that i found Ooh. oh i like mm. that a lot yeah that's very good that's very tasty it's nice and festive with the red, and it's getting to the holiday season for us, so. Yeah. It's got a little bit of that apple and the tang of the cranberry. I'm digging it. Yeah, it's super good. I would so, recommend anybody try this. Oh, for sure. The history of the Jersey Devil. So 
I decided to do history of the Jersey Devil, which is a cryptid and not of the drink. So I did a very abridged version of the history regarding this cryptid because I am not a super cryptid knowledgeable person. So um, it originated in the Pine Barrens area of South New Jersey in the U.S. It's usually described as a flying two-legged animal that has cloven hooves. I'm already not liking this description. Yeah. <laughs> the wings are leathery and bat-like. The head is a horse or a goat with horns. Mm. Uh, it has small arms with claws. Yeah. Well, it keeps going. It doesn't get any better. It has small arms with claws. Um, and there are different variations of the description, but uh, those are the basics. It is also called the Leeds Devil and is rumored to have been the 13th child of Mother Leeds, who cursed the baby when she found out she was pregnant again. And I wholeheartedly agree with that. I don't know. I couldn't imagine being pregnant that many times. I might curse something as well if I had been. <laughs> it was the unlucky number 13 baby. Oh, I didn't even think about the 13 <laughs> factor. Ooh. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um. So that is a little tidbit about the Jersey Devil, which is what the drink is named after. And the reason I chose that drink is because of the name, the Jersey Devil. I picked a story out of Jersey or off of the Jersey Island in the UK. So let me tell you about that story, Declan. Go for it. Many of us have heard about double jeopardy. In the U.S., it's a clause in the Fifth Amendment that prohibits someone from being prosecuted twice for the same crime. In the U.K., it is a rule with the same basic premise that you cannot be prosecuted for the same crime twice if you have been acquitted of the crime. However, in 2003, there was a change to that rule in the U.K., which provided it, it proved problematic for a criminal in our story today. So our story today takes place in Jersey, which is the largest of the Channel Islands that sit between England and France. In a ground floor flat in August of 1990, 85-year-old Emma Anton, who lived in Paris, was visiting her niece, 59-year-old Barbara Griffin. They were staying at Barbara's flat in Jersey. At about two in the morning, an intruder moved some of removed some of his clothing outside of the bathroom window. Seems very strange, but it plays a role in the story in a minute. Okay. He he broke into the flat through the window and began attacking Emma, stabbing her multiple times. Barbara heard the attack and tried to intervene and protect her aunt. At some point after the attack, Barbara was able to call the emergency line and request assistance. During the altercation, Barbara was stabbed in the heart and she died a few hours later. Barbara's Aunt Emma survived the attack, though. 
When the police arrived, they began investigating and collecting evidence and interviewing neighbors. Due to the time of the year, the weather was warm and many people had their windows open. Witnesses reported seeing a man who was partially clothed running away from the scene carrying a bundle of clothing. Thus, the man who decided to get partially naked before breaking in. Seems weird. Yeah, very weird. Eventually, the suspect was identified as 21-year-old Ricky Tregascus, and he was charged five days after the event. Tregascus was remanded to prison until the trial took place. That occurred in September and October of 1991. Unfortunately, none of the physical evidence that was collected at Tregascus's house and Barbara's house confirmed that he was the suspect. So that made it a little tricky because they didn't have a whole lot of physical evidence, basically none, I guess. Um, so they were relying on like the accounts of people that had seen him leaving the area. Plus, okay. a friend of Tregascus's was scheduled to testify. He had claimed that before the attack on Emma and Barbara, Tregascus had asked him if he wanted to come along with him while he committed a burglary because he was in need of money. The witness also claimed that after the attacks, Tregascus had confessed he was responsible and that he had enjoyed killing Barbara. Unfortunately, the witness left the area the day before the trial and Tregascus ended up being acquitted. After his release, Tregascus spent a few years under the radar, but in 1994, Tregascus and a criminal associate stabbed a nightclub doorman. Both received criminal sentences for the attack, but Tregascus was paroled in 1997. A couple of months after his parole, Tregascus was at a Chinese restaurant when he encountered Michael Josie. In Tregascus's opinion, Michael Josie looked at him the wrong way. This upset him to the point that he attacked Michael outside the restaurant. He proceeded to kick Michael in the head, which was up against a wall. This killed Michael, Josie. So basically, Josie was down on the ground and laying up against the wall, and his head was up against the wall, and that's when Tregascus kicked him in the head so severe multiple times that it ended up killing him. That would make sense. That's not a yeah. good place to be getting your head kicked. No. Um, unfortunately, Tregascus was not immediately a suspect in the case, and so he kind of went on his merry way. He actually went to visit his sister in another town, and during that visit, he confessed to her about killing Michael Josie. He told his sister it made him feel good to kill a man with his bare hands. Okay. A real nice guy, it seems like. Yeah. His sister finally told the police about this confession a few months later, and Tregascus was arrested. It took almost two years for Tregascus to be convicted of Michael Josie's death, and he received a life sentence for the murder, with a minimum term of 20 years before he could be considered for parole. In 2009, police started reviewing several outstanding cases that were considered unsolved. Robert Griffin's stabbing from 1990 was one of those cases. The investigator started looking at it again because it was considered an unsolved murder. Because remember, he had been acquitted. So they were like, ah, okay, he didn't do it according to the law. Damn. However, the senior investigator, Lee Turner, was assigned to the case. He began researching it with fresh eyes. 
He knew that Trigascus was identified as a suspect in 1990, but he also knew that Trigascus had been acquitted. During Turner's investigation, he started to uncover more evidence pointing to Trigascus. It was also important to note that the evidence did not point to any other suspects. Trigascus was the only one. Double jeopardy is a rule in the UK, like I talked about before, meaning that once you've been acquitted, you can't be tried again. However, in 2003, there were changes to the double jeopardy rule that allowed re-examination of the cases. The investigators could still present new evidence to the attorney general, and the attorney general could then apply to the court of appeals to overturn the acquittal. The new evidence must be compelling and reliable in order for the suspect to be tried again. And that's what happened in this case. Trigascus was tried again in 2022 for the murder of Barbara Griffin and the assault of Emma Anton. During the second trial, four people testified to statements that Trigascus had made to them. They all stated that he had confessed to them and that basically he was bragging. He said he had gotten away with murder, uh, the murder of Barbara and the attack on Emma. He bragged that he had been acquitted and could not be tried again. These four witnesses were not connected to each other. They were all independent people. Uh, and the confession occurred at different times. There were details in these confessions that correlated with other evidence as well. These witnesses were a couple of Trigascus's friends, including the friend that was supposed to testify in the first trial, the one that didn't show up and led to his acquittal. He came back around. He was like, ah, okay, I'll testify now as well as Trigascus's half-sister, the one that he had confessed to about Michael Josie's death, and then a former roommate of Trigascus as well. The result of the second trial was different than the first, and the families of Barbara and Emma finally received justice when Trigascus was convicted and sentenced to life in prison with a minimum of 20 years before he was eligible for parole. Sweet. So... I guess if you want to think about it this way, the moral of the story is, if you get away with murder, shut your damn mouth. Yeah, what the <laughs> fuck? That seems like how most people get caught is they want to go brag in a bar. Yeah. Oh, that's fucking dumb as hell. So, yeah, that I mean, he would have been basically, uh, from what I heard and what I read, they didn't have a whole lot of physical evidence. It was all him just bragging to everybody that he could think of that he'd gotten away with it, and there were so many people that they were like, oh, yeah, okay. It was him. Yeah, that's – that's I, also, why would you be bragging about that? I, I'm i assuming most people don't want to hang out with the killer. Nonetheless, a naked man running through the street <laughs> kicking people's heads in. <laughs> so. He probably left that part out. He was probably like, no, no. Uh, he probably didn't tell anybody that he was half naked <laughs> during the assault. I don't know. Crazy person. Yeah. Weird fucking guy. Yep. For sure. Well, what is the story that you are going to tell me, this bizarre story? 
story of the Great Molasses Flood. The day was January 15th, 1919. It was an average January day in the North End neighborhood in Boston, Massachusetts. Ships rolled in and out of the harbor, children played in the snow, and markets were filled with people. Located near Keeney Square is the Purity Distilling Company, whose main focus was the distillery process. At the time, molasses was one of the main ingredients in distilling ethanol, and this ingredient was used to create munitions and alcoholic beverages, so it was pretty lucrative business at the time. On January 14th, a ship carrying molasses stopped at the Purity Distilling Company and delivered a load of molasses. This was stored in a metal tank around 50 feet tall and 90 feet wide. Oh, this tank could hold around 2.3 million gallons or (gasps) 8.7 million liters of molasses. Oh, wow. So that's a big, big metal tank. That is, oh, I bet that was a sight to see. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, come to Boston and see our molasses tanks. (laughs) Hey, you know, weird people go see weird stuff. It's fine. True. (laughs) <laughs> on on January 15th, the temperature had risen a few degrees above normal, and on that day, it was around 40 degrees Fahrenheit. I'm not from Boston, but I I assume that it's fairly cold there around January and wintertime, so. I think so. I, I think I've heard of, like, snowstorms and things like that there. Yeah. Uh To transfer the molasses, it must be heated up to increase the viscosity. So when the ship delivered the molasses, it was heated, then transferred into the tank. Due to thermal expansion from the fresh molasses meeting the cold molasses in the tank, the tank ruptured. (gasps) At around 12.30 p.m. on January 15, 1919, the ground around Keeney Square began to rumble as the sound of warping metal filled the air. As the rivets on the tank broke, they sounded like gunshots. Screaming and panic could be heard all around as people began to flee the scene. A wave of molasses rushed over the square and began to fill the streets. The wave of molasses was 25 feet high and was moving at 35 miles an hour, carrying people... Oh vehicles, and anything else in the street. Yeah, and since molasses has such a high viscosity, it carries a lot more uh, inertia than water does. Uh-huh. So it, while it's this wave is a lot smaller than uh, a tsunami, it was still just as devastating. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Buildings were swept off their foundations, and the surrounding area was flooded in two to three feet of molasses. After the initial wave of molasses passed, people were stuck in this deep molasses, and since it was so cold, it trapped them like amber. Oh my gosh! People were frozen in place. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, crap. Oh. 116 cadets from the USS Nantucket 
were the first on the scene to help retrieve survivors. And along came Boston PD, Red Cross, the Army, and the Navy close behind them. After four days of searching through waist-high molasses, the search was called off, and cleaning efforts began. The harbor near the accident remained brown until summer, and cleaning efforts took up to several weeks with hundreds of volunteers. And to this day, residents of the area claim that they smell molasses when temperatures rise outside. Oh. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay, I have some questions. Okay. So... What, how did they heat it to transport it? Because you were saying that they had to heat it to increase the viscosity so that they could move it to the tank, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How, how did they heat it? Like, did they use blow torches? Did they, like, I don't, it's you don't a, know. I have no idea. It's on a tanker ship. So they probably had a oh. special chamber for holding it that they could like control the temperature on oh maybe yeah i have no idea how Mm. they that was back in 1919 i don't know if the molasses heating up technology was very fancy or not right (laughs) wow that is a crazy story that i just can't even imagine like how i've never heard of it before like yeah (laughs) it's a crazy story and that smell, like molasses has such a distinct smell, that sulfury, weird. I mean, I like it in some things, but it definitely you have to use it in very small quantities. And yeah. you know it's in there. When you smell something, you're like, oh, that's the molasses smell. I can't imagine smelling that. Like yeah. just, and- oh. Some of the people who were uh, helping with search and rescue, they ugh, they described the people that were already dead in the molasses. They were like frozen in time. Ugh. Like still had the look of horror on their face. And, yeah. Like completely stiff, just frozen in this molasses. Okay. Another logistical question. Okay. Only because I just was watching a clip this morning a, a cooking thing where they were making a gingerbread cake and they were using molasses mm-hmm. and the the tip was to spray the inside of like your measuring cup that you are measuring your molasses into spray it with like oil or a nonstick spray or something so that when you pour the molasses in there to measure it it will slide out easier do you think that the rescuers like covered themselves in oil so that they could walk through walk through the molasses easier. So actually no they didn't because everything <laughs> in the area was covered. All the trains, all the like doorknobs, everyone who was helping said everything in their house was sticky after helping. <gasps> yeah. So molasses was tracked all throughout Boston. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And uh, that case That's actually rough. resulted in one of the first uh, class action lawsuits that took place in Boston. 
Oh, and it was yeah. for that company. And uh, yeah, they they had to pay a shitload of money. <laughs> I bet. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's 21 people dead and 150 injured. That's a huge settlement. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Crazy. So yeah, that's the story of the Great Molasses Flood of Boston. Oh. I'm just shocked. Very strange. <laughs> I don't know why that's not like a huge thing in like it's scientific in history. history. Come on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It should be in scientific history textbooks. Like this is what happens when you mix hot liquids and cold, you know. Things that are a little bit more solidified. And when you combine the the heated thing and the cold thing, bad things can happen. Or that even would have if been it like interesting. wasn't a sealed tank. Like if it yeah. just had some way so for the pressure to escape, exchanged. Yeah. it would have been fine. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, they were, they were able to find uh, trucks that had been dumped in the harbor from the wave. It really took a toll on the area. Like everything yeah. was fucked up. Oh, I bet. I bet. Because with the My tsunami, gosh. the tsunami comes and it's water, obviously very devastating water, but the water leaves. It finds a way to go away. It goes into the ground. It right. Returns back. But the molasses right. just stuck there. <laughs> it just right. sat there because oh, it was so cold that it wasn't as viscous anymore that Right. It just kind of like froze in place. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Ugh, fucking nasty. So messy. So messy. <laughs> I don't even want to think about trying to clean something like that up. No, thanks. Do you have a chaser for us ready? Absolutely. I have a show recommendation, which uh, we just started watching. I think we're five episodes in. I'm not even sure how many episodes there are, but it's The Ancient Apocalypse on Netflix. It is. Have you heard about it? Yeah, you, you just stole it? my chaser. Oh, shit. Yeah, it's <laughs> something else. Um, Hosted by Graham Hancock, who is a British journalist and author. And uh, I mean, I've, if you were going to use it as your chaser, then I don't need to tell you what it's about. But for those people who don't know what <laughs> it's about, <laughs> yes, um, he's researching information on ancient civilizations and presenting different theories about ancient civilizations and the monuments that have been found in different countries that have been uh, unearthed and through methods of archaeology digs and to try and find how these like temples and different statues and pillars and things, who made them? When were they made? What were they used for? Um, he, I found out about the show by listening to, he has a recent episode on Joe Rogan experience. And 
he was talking about it and just listening to like some of the information that he was presenting, I was like, I got to go watch this show. Um, He gets a lot of crap from people, from the supposed experts in archaeology and things like that, because he's presenting alternate theories and alternate ideas of what some of these places were used for. And so he's criticized for being a pseudoscientist and and relying on pseudoscientific information. But basically, he's just presenting like, well, I know you guys think that it happened in, in this time period, but what if it was a different time period? And what if we lost that civilization? Because he's got theories of like, why were these things that were built thousands and thousands of years ago so sophisticated if the timelines don't add up. So Mm. it's super interesting. Uh, Definitely makes you scratch your head about where things came from and why. So I highly recommend it, but I would say go check it out. So sorry that I stole your chaser. (laughs) That's fine. That show is uh, super interesting. What, um, what is your chaser then? Uh, I just saw that the Red Hot Chili Peppers just released a new single. Oh, really? Which is kind of surprising because I think it was last month that they just dropped uh, a whole new album, which is, I don't think they've released anything for a while. So that was pretty cool to see. They're oh. one of my favorite bands, so glad to see that they're releasing music frequently again yeah that's cool i did not know that so i think that wraps up our podcast today yes it does thank you for listening everybody all right well i love you mom love you too bud talk to you later Bye. bye thanks for listening and supporting our podcast we would love for you to follow us on your favorite podcast platform And if you want to give us a five-star rating, we would forever be grateful. You can contact us at our email via thebrutalandbizarre at gmail.com or on our Instagram at thebrutal underscore bizarre underscore boozy.